0: Hey Mills, Freightways at at Home is today. You know, it's taken us two months. We would be in Atlanta today watching all of the great presentation and demos, but you know what's great about this? We actually get to see here on the couch. You and Ellie get to sit there and watch Freightways live broadcast on Apple TV or on the internet. Isn't that awesome? You're excited. I can tell. Look at your face. You're so excited about Freightways at Home. Any demos that you're excited about or talks? Yeah. yeah? I think he's more interested in the dog. But I'm not. I'm interested in Freightways at home. We're going to stream all this awesome content. And we really are excited to have you here. Uh, yes, right? Yes, he's excited as well. Mills is super, super pumped about Freightways at home. We've been planning this for two months uh, after we realized that we couldn't be in person. Uh, it's been a lot of effort put together by the Freight TV team and the broader production group here at Freight I want to thank the speakers, the demo companies, sponsors, and you for being a part of this brand new experience. We have never done a live streaming event before. This is all new territory. So we hope that everything goes to plan. But we have built a lot of redundancy in the plan but being our first event we're going to experience this alongside you we're really really grateful to have you here and grateful for your support and most importantly we're gonna have an awesome time with Freightways Live look Mills you excited he's super pumped I am too glad to have you and welcome to Freightways Live at Home
1: that, that was too cute. Whether you're like our founder and CEO Craig Fuller and watching this from the comfort of your living room or you're at the office with your coworkers, we want to welcome everyone to Freight Waves Live at Home. My name is Emily Zink. I am the EVP of content here at Freight Waves. I know times are a bit different. We all were supposed to be in Atlanta. We were excited for the Freight Tech Party of the Year. Well, I guarantee Freight Waves Live at Home will not disappoint. As Craig said, we're still going to have those fabulous industry keynotes. We're also going to have seven-minute rapid-fire demos and networking. A lot of people have already been talking on Slack. I love the conversations. If you have yet to join in, make sure you go to live.freightwaves.com to get signed up for Slack and join the conversation. Our first keynote speaker advised a president during a global health crisis. I want to invite on Ron Klain. He is currently the EVP and General Counsel for Revolution. He also served as the Ebola response coordinator from 2014 to 2015. Ron, welcome to the show via Skype.
2: Emily, thank you. Thanks so much for having me.
1: No problem. Uh, Before you give your keynote, I just want to let everyone know that we are doing a live Q&A sponsored by DDC-FPO afterwards. So if you have any questions while Ron is talking, make sure you put those in the Slack home channel. Or if you're watching on LinkedIn Live or Facebook, put those there and I will get your questions answered by Ron. But Ron, the floor is all yours.
2: Well, Emily, thank you so much. Thanks for having me here at Freightwaves Live. I look forward to being in Atlanta with you all, uh, but I'm pleased to be able to give some remarks and take your questions via this innovative way of holding this conference. Uh, as Emily suggested, I'm kind of here for two reasons. First of all, I'm general counsel at in an investment firm called Revolution. We're proud investors in Freightwaves. We met the Freightwaves team, Craig and his team, in Chattanooga in 2018. As part of our Rise of the Rest tour, we find great companies outside of Silicon Valley and New York to invest in. And we are thrilled to be investors in Freightwaves uh, and to subsequently support the company again. Uh, it's one of our proudest investments. We're so uh, excited about what the team there is doing. But secondly, as Emily suggested, I'm here to talk with my experiences having been the White House Ebola Response Coordinator in 2014 and 2015. And I want to talk a little bit about the state of the COVID epidemic in the U.S., uh, what it means for supply chains and the challenges we're facing there, and third, what the role of the logistics industry is going to be in resolving this crisis. Before I do, though, I do want to say a word of thanks to all the men and women in this industry. We say right now often that the economy's closed or shut down, but we know that's not really true. There are millions of Americans at work today making it possible for others of us to be working from home or in other places. And of course, first and foremost among those people are our doctors, our nurses, our healthcare workers, our first responders, but not far behind are the many, men and women in the logistics industry that are making it possible for the rest of us to work from our homes by delivering goods and other things we need to make this scenario possible. Many of them are risking their own health to do so. Some have even perished. So on behalf of everyone in the country, I just want to thank all the people in this industry who are making this difficult time uh, possible, livable for many of the other of us. So thank you to everyone involved in that. Now, let me go on then to talk about the three things I outlined. Where are we in terms of the COVID epidemic? What is the role of the, what is the impact that's having on supply chains? And finally, uh, what is the role of logistics in resolving this pandemic? We just finished a few days ago the month of April, which was one of the saddest months in American history. More people died of COVID that month than any other cause in the United States, more than of heart attacks or of all forms of cancer. More people died of COVID in April than died in the entirety of the Vietnam War. It was a tragic month. And very sadly, as we turn the corner into May, it looks like we're headed to another month of similar loss and fatality around the country. Uh, maybe a little better in May, maybe a little worse, but it's going to be largely the same. And what we're seeing is a kind of a paradoxical situation where some of the hardest hit areas like New York and New Jersey are starting to show improvement but remain at very high levels of disease. And some of the areas that have been spared thus far in the heartland of the country are now seeing cases increase, not decrease as we move into the month of May. And I think it's important to understand that two ideas that maybe are on our heads about the disease need to be dispelled. One is the peak and the other is the parabola. The peak is this idea that was popularly communicated in the early parts of this disease, that the disease would kind of go up quickly, hit a peak, and come down quickly. That's not the way epidemics work historically. Epidemics escalate very quickly, but de-escalate very slowly. It takes much longer to bring the number of cases down than it does, sadly, for the number of cases to ramp up. We're seeing that right now. Even if the disease accelerated in your area in a short period of time in late March or early April, it's going to take much longer than that to get it back under control. So the peak isn't really a steep upward point from which we steeply decline. It's more like a hockey stick on the way up and a table on the way down. The second is the idea of the parabola. That the disease is one single curve that starts low, goes up, comes down, and finishes near the x-axis relatively promptly. Again, that's not what the history of epidemics teach us. What they teach us is that it's a series of surges and lower cases of incidence up and down, back and forth. Sometimes we talk about a second wave or a third wave, but really it's more like a series of hills with some steeper and some shallower. But we're in this fight for the long haul. This is not going to be something that gets resolved in the next few weeks. This is going to go on for an extended period of time, unfortunately. Which brings me to my second topic, which is the impact all of this is having on the supply chain. You know, obviously, those of you in this industry know the impact on the supply chain has been rather uneven. There are parts of the supply chain that are running at very, very low capacity. Large ships maybe from China, for example. But there are other parts of the supply chain that are strained like never before, as people change their habits of where they work, how they consume, what they consume, where they consume it, getting those goods to people where they are now has been a giant challenge that the logistics industry has really succeeded at, I think, beyond anyone's expectation. New technology and innovation and disruption have played a critical role in delivering on that. But as difficult as that's been, we may find the period ahead even harder for the supply chain. Why? Well, first of all, sadly, we're going to see more business failures, I think, in the month of May than we saw in April. As the length of this crisis extends and as the fact that this isn't going to be a brief crisis uh, becomes more and more clear, we're going to see more uh, difficult and long-term impacts on our economy in the weeks and months ahead. That's going to change, obviously, lots of relationships in the supply chain. And secondly, what we're going to see is a lot of unevenness in the way in which parts of the economy reopen. In some states, people will be back at work. In other states, people will still be at home. In some states, some industries will be open. In other states, other industries will be closed. And that means that crafty and clever suppliers are going to have to get goods to where people are, and not everyone's going to be in the same place. It means that we're going to be dealing with high levels of the disease in some places and lower levels of the disease in other places, with customers having different needs and different constraints as a result. As challenging and as impressive as the performance of this industry has been over the past few weeks, the period ahead could be even more challenging and require even more innovation. At Revolution, we're proud to back, as another one of our investments, the company, Uptake, which I know is demonstrating at this conference its automated maintenance software and other tools it's developed to help deal with these challenges. You're going to hear from many other innovative companies as well. We're going to need all these tools and all these forms of innovation to navigate the patchwork circumstances we're gonna see as a country for the next few months, certainly for the rest of the summer at the very least. This difficult scenario where circumstances are not only changed, but constantly changing. Where things that were closed are open, where things that were open are closed, where people and things are in different places than they used to be just a short time ago. That's gonna be a huge challenge for this industry and a huge challenge for innovation in this industry in the months ahead. Which brings me then to my final topic, which is how the logistics industry is going to play a role in resolving this pandemic. You know, doctors, nurses, scientists, medical experts, they beat disease, but logistics beat pandemics. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, it's one thing for the doctors and the nurses to save individual patients. It's another thing for researchers and scientists to discover drugs and vaccines that can help end a disease. But it requires the skill and talent of logistics experts to get all those things to where they need to be in the condition they need to be. And so let me give one example. Near the end of the Ebola epidemic in 2015, a new vaccine for treating Ebola was discovered. It was tested and proven to be successful. We didn't have it available in time to fight that epidemic. We beat it with more traditional means. But it became a tool in the world's toolkit. And it's one reason why many... Ebola outbreaks since 2015 have been solved without them becoming Ebola epidemics, thanks to this vaccine. But that vaccine, which is manufactured and stored in Europe, needs to be delivered through cold chain technology at minus 60 degrees to just before the time it's given. And it's often administered now in remote parts of Africa, where there are limited or irregular supplies of electricity. The ability... To beat the Ebola epidemics that have broken out and been at risk in Africa in the five years since then turns on the wisdom and genius of scientists, of course, who found that vaccine, but turns on the skill and professionalism of the logistics industry that gets that vaccine where it needs to be at minus 60 degrees in parts of Africa with very limited resources. That's incredible. We're going to need similar miracles from this industry going forward to fight this epidemic, this pandemic. That means getting protective gear to the workers who need it, where they need it, when they need it, Uh, helping ramp up our testing capability by delivering test kits and by uh, helping to figure out what supplies, what chemicals, what reagents, what test kit supplies need to be where they need to be and get them there on time. And ultimately it means identifying and delivering therapeutics and ultimately that vaccine to the people who are going to need it in the United States and I should say that the logistics challenge with COVID isn't just a U.S. challenge. It's a global challenge. We are going to increasingly see this disease spread around the world. Right now, it's been largely a problem of the what we call the global north, Europe, China, Asia. But soon, it's going to become a giant challenge in Africa, in South America. And the need to do all the things that we've done in this country over the past few weeks in terms of delivering goods, delivering supplies, getting hard and specialized things where they need to be is going to become a greater global challenge in the weeks and months ahead. So let me just conclude again by thanking Craig and the FreightWaves team for inviting me to speak with you today. And by thanking again the men and women of this industry who are doing such amazing work in such a difficult time to help this country get through this crisis. And we're going to play such a critical role in the weeks and months ahead in bringing this crisis to a close. So thank you. Aaron, I'm ready to take people's questions.
1: Ron, I love that line when you say logistics solves pandemics, that that really is insightful. Great talk there. We've had so many fabulous questions. We're moving on to our Q&A with our keynote in partnership with DDC FPO, the number one preferred back office partner for transportation now offering customers brokerage data capture. DDC is proud to serve this industry with reliable business continuity and long-term cost containment to protect clients from unforeseen per- circumstances. To learn Learn more about DDC and their solutions. Head to DDCF. or just email info at DDCFPO.com. Again, if you have any questions, we have gotten some fabulous ones so far. Put those either on LinkedIn Live or also in the home channel on Slack. I'm going to start, Ron, with this question from Adam Robinson. His question is, how does the government consult the private sector on supply chain efficiency in the midst of a crisis like COVID-19 to improve movement of critical goods like PPE?
2: Emily, it's a great question. You know, one of the big challenges here is getting those critical goods where they need to be. And, you know, there is a task force at the White House that's overseeing this. In addition, uh, the president has tasked uh, officials at FEMA to play a special role in working with the supply chain uh, and, and those who are delivering goods from the supply chain, try to get them where they need to be. Coordination with the supply chain is a real challenge because um, you know, you have these needs for goods urgently, And those needs change rapidly. We've seen this in New York already where uh, there was a real need for massive number of ventilators, protective gear. Now some of that's backed off. That need has moved to other places. And so it's not just getting things where they need to be in the first place. It's then getting them to where they need to be in the second and the third place. And that's a job really for coordination at the White House. That was part of my job when I was the Ebola response coordinator back in 2014, 2015, in terms of getting gear where it needed to be here in the U.S., as well as in West Africa, where we're fighting the disease, and that's a challenge I you know that the White House is trying to manage every day today.
1: Our next question comes from Trey Griggs. Um, he wants to know, there's been a lot of questions around classifications of COVID-19 deaths as deaths by flu or pneumonia have plummeted. Excuse me. Is it accurate to say deaths from COVID-19 may not be as accurate as they're being reported?
2: Yeah, so I think, if anything, Emily, I think, unfortunately, the number of deaths is higher than we think it is. There's, a, I mean, in the end, the simplest way is to add up the number of people who are dying every month in our country, and that number's up significantly over what it was. Uh, last month was one of the most lethal months of American history uh, since World War II. Uh, more people died in America last month than died in the month of D-Day in World War II. And so uh, there's no question that if there's a miscount in the COVID cases, it's an undercount. Um, yes, cases of flu and pneumonia are down because it's uh, warmer months and they tend to drop down. But, uh, but if anything, the 60,000 or so deaths from COVID last month uh, were almost certainly an undercount.
1: Well, great insight there from you, Ron. Next question comes from Scott Case. He wants to know, as Congress looks at the next relief package, should there be priority and protection for supply chain workers considered essential, people like ramp workers, locomotive operators, or longshoremen? Shore-
2: Yeah, I think we definitely need to do something to recognize the men and women who are really on the front lines of this. And again, obviously, it's first and foremost doctors, nurses, first responders. But it is a lot of people working in this industry who are delivering goods and packages, who are working in warehouses, loading things, packing boxes, all those people who are doing that and taking risks. And we know that some of those people are in fact dying from COVID. And so their work needs to be recognized. It needs to be appreciated. That starts, of course, first of all, saying thank you and really recognizing that some of these unsung jobs in our society are really important jobs. You know, we never maybe considered these people essential workers till now, and they deserve that recognition. But they also deserve some compensation for that. A thank you isn't enough. And when people are putting their lives on the line to make it possible for others to Uh, work safely from home or wherever they're working from. Uh, It's important to also provide some financial incentives for that, too. And I hope Congress will do that when it next does something about addressing this crisis.
1: Well, all of us are either watching this from at home or at the office. And we would have been traveling via flight, a lot of us, to Atlanta right now. Airlines, have we've seen in the news, it's just a horrible time for them. When do you think flying will get back to normal or if a recovery will even happen within this year for the airlines?
2: Well, I think we're going to start to see more and more people fly, uh, probably late in summer. I think you'll start to see uh, airline travel come back. But I think it's important, Emily, to talk about the idea of back to normal. And so you know, I think we have this idea of the economy sometimes as an on-off switch, and it's kind of turned to off now, and some magical day people will flip it back to on. It's really more like a dimmer switch. It's dialed down low, but not off now. And it will be dialed back up gradually, I think, in the months ahead. And so that means even as more people start to fly, we're unlikely to see filled airplanes for a very long time. Indeed, many airlines may require that empty seats be, uh, middle seats be kept empty so that passengers are more spread out. That right there drops the capacity of a plane by a third, right? And so I think what we're going to see in all parts of the economy is even as they begin to ramp back up, they will not be back to where they were in February or March for a very long time. Uh, we're going to see this kind of gradual increasing. And finally, the last thing I'd say is we have to remember that we spent a lot of time talking about what policies and decisions governors are going to make about what things are or aren't allowed. But America is a consumer-driven economy. Ultimately, the consumers decide what business activities are or not going to really go forward. It can be lawful to open a restaurant, but if customers don't show up, then the restaurant industry still continues to struggle. And I think what we're seeing in survey data is that customers are more cautious right now than policymakers, that even in states that are talking about really vastly reopening large large activities, ramping up those activities, the customers are probably lagging behind that and still feeling very uncertain about what's, what's ahead.
1: Yeah, when you touched on states reopening and places like restaurants opening their doors to consumers once again, you'll go into a restaurant, you'll see the tables spaced six feet apart. Um, All the servers are wearing masks. Even if you go to a doctor's office, they have certain chairs marked off where you have to sit six feet away. Is social distancing the new norm?
2: Well, I think it's certainly going to be the norm for a while. I think certainly uh, for the rest of the year, we're likely to see social distancing Uh, that may ease in some places. People may be better and worse about it in some places, but, uh, and we're already seeing certainly some resistance to that, some anti-mask sentiment and things like that. But uh, it is unlikely that we are going to either get to so-called herd immunity from this disease before the end of the year or have a vaccine that's widely available by the end of the year. And so to be safe, we're all going to have to continue to practice social distancing for the foreseeable future. And that is, I think, again, certainly through the end of 2020.
1: This next question comes from Eric Coolidge. He wants to know the logistics response in the U.S. seems very chaotic. Tactically, logistics companies are executing at very high levels, but they're working for states, hospitals, local governments, and FEMA that are all competing against one another for supplies. What could the government have done to organize this massive effort in a way that gets supplies where it is needed, and we wouldn't see shortages we've seen?
2: Yeah, so... Look, obviously, uh, I don't want to get into politically contentious issues here, but I do think this has been one of the big debates around the response. The administration made a decision to leave the supply issues to each state and each provider to resolve, and that has led to this kind of chaotic challenge that the questioner uh, raised, Emily. And so uh, the alternative would have been for the federal government to take more control of the supply chain to use a tool called the Defense Production Act that the president has to assert his authority to place orders for all these goods at the federal level and to distribute them all at the federal level. We did something like that in the Ebola response. We didn't use that statute, but we used our other authorities to do most of the directing of the supply chain to try to get goods to where they needed to be to try to really resolve some of this chaos that the questioner is asking about. But for whatever reason, The administration decided not to do that here, decided to let each state do its own thing, each provider do its own thing. And as a result, you do see these challenges that the questioner asked about. I do think, again, I'm going to repeat myself, but I think the performance of the logistics industry in managing through this has really been exceptional. Uh, The challenge of getting the incredibly difficult and disparate technical array of supplies where they need to be to fight this epidemic has been an enormous one. And while there have been a lot of challenges, a lot of shortages in manufacture of these goods and availability of these goods, there have been shockingly few stories about challenges in getting those goods delivered promptly where they need to be. And that really speaks to the innovation that's been in this industry over the past several years, the use of technology to really be able to make these kind of uh, spectacular last minute decisions about uh, how things get to where they are and where they need to get to.
1: Yeah, you make a very good point there. You are so right. This next question comes from Craig Fuller. He wants to know, how will this impact the election and how will states handle it?
2: Well, you know, one thing we can start with this premise under federal law, we're going to have this election in November, period, full stop. And he talks about changing the date or postponing the election. That's just fanciful. This election will go forward. Now, I think most Americans believe that the way it should go forward is being able to vote by home from home. People should be able to get ballots mailed to them and mail them back. It's a way we've used for voting in our country for 150 years. Since the Civil War, every man and woman in our armed forces has been allowed to vote by mail. It's worked for 150 years for them. seems like it should work for everyone else. And it avoids the question of whether or not it's going to be safe to vote in a particular place in early November, which will be, I think, unpredictable and uneven. So vote by mail is certainly the best solution. We have it quite uh, in a quite easy way to do in about half the states, but not in about half the other states, and hopefully all of the states will move to that. Now, that itself is a bit of a logistical challenge. It takes special machines to open mail-in ballots, to tally the mail-in ballots, and of course, to get the mail-in ballots from the offices of election officials to people's homes and back to those offices on a timely basis. So there are a lot of challenges there, but they're manageable challenges, particularly if we start now. There are going to be some Americans, even if we do have widespread vote by mail, who are going to exercise their constitutional right to show up on election day and vote in person. That's the right of every single American. And um, we're going to need to take steps to try to protect polling places, protect poll workers, equip them with PPE so poll workers are safe. Wipe down election equipment frequently during the day so that people aren't getting the virus by touching the election equipment and things like that. So running the election in person is going to be complicated. Doing mail-in ballots is certainly the simplest solution.
1: It does sound like the easy solution there. But as you said, it's going to take a lot of logistics to get ready for that. In the headline news right now, Japan, they are seeing a second wave of the coronavirus. Could we potentially see something like that here in the United States?
2: Some way, I think not only potentially, but almost certainly. And I think that, uh, again, I think we need to get out of our heads the idea that necessarily these are going to be these kind of Perfectly symmetrical curves, where they go up, they come down; they're low, they go up, they come down. You know that I think we have in our minds this thing looking kind of like a a ski resort where they're just a bunch of mountains separated apart. Instead, I think what we're going to see is, uh, you know, levels of the disease that are higher and lower, but even the low levels may be sadly high, and we may be just dealing with this as an ongoing problem for the next few months. Uh, we're again, as I said, we're into a second month of a high number of cases, a high number of deaths here in the month of May. Uh, that may abate somewhat in June. Uh, that may abate somewhat in July. But I do think we are going to see uh, episodic resurgences of this disease in places. Now, the second big boom in this disease may not be as national as this one is. We may see it varying a lot place by place and. I think that was a point I tried to make in my remarks. I think one of the challenges for the supply chain industry is going to be that we're going to have an uneven second and third wave here. We're going to have some places very hard hit, some places trying to get to something that looks more like normal life. And so the the way the supply chain works in different parts of the country is going to look very, very different in the weeks and months ahead. And that unevenness is going to take this challenge we're facing and make it even more challenging when people in City A say, hey, I'm back at work, get me everything in my office, and people at City B are, I'm at home, get me everything at my house. Uh, That kind of unevenness uh, is what I I think we're going to probably see in the weeks and months ahead.
1: Brandon Freed from the Air Forwarders Association wants to know, do you think the recent CARES Act provided sufficient rescue funding for American businesses?
2: No, I don't think so. I think we're going to have to do more, Uh, Congress is going to have to do more for workers and for businesses. Uh, when it comes back and begins to reconsider these measures, which I hope will be sooner rather than later. And I think that's both making sure that uh, particularly small businesses you know, have a chance to restart. I think that some of the funding that's been provided that's kind of been a lifeline uh, certainly has helped keep some people on payrolls it's certainly helped pay some of the bills. But businesses that are closed for weeks or months are going to require capital to get going again. And that's going to be a challenge. They're going to have to find ways to operate. Potentially, some businesses are going to have to operate at reduced capacity for an extended period of time. Let's take restaurants. We talked about it earlier, Emily. You know, if a restaurant, anyone who's been in the restaurant industry knows it's a tough business. It's tough to make a restaurant work. And it's tough when every table is filled on a Saturday night or on a peak lunch date. But if you have to run a restaurant with half the tables empty for safety reasons, that's going to make running that restaurant even harder. For the long haul. And so we're going to have to think about how to support our economy through this period of time when even things that are reopened aren't at full capacity. But of course, most of all, we're also going to have to think about helping our workers, where we have more than 30 million people out of work. 30 million people. Those are Great Depression-style numbers out of work right now. Now, some of those people will get their jobs back as parts of the economy open, but a lot of them won't. Uh, A lot of them will still be unemployed. And so Congress is certainly going to have to do something, try to help those men and women uh, stay on their feet, uh, feed their families, find new jobs, uh, potentially move into new industries, potentially. I know already many people who've lost their jobs in some industries have found jobs in the logistics industry. We know that there are many key players in this industry that are hiring, that are actually beefing up, ramping up. Uh, But that's going to take, obviously, more training, more time. And that's going to need some support to get that done.
1: As you just mentioned, the economy, it's going to take a long time for things to be back to normal. I know this is a very broad question, but we'll end on this. Do you have any prediction of when we think jobs will be filled again, when the money will start flowing, when the economy will be back to normal?
2: Well, that is, of course, the hardest question of all. And what I'd say is uh, it's hard to put a date on that. Uh, Normal, normal may not be. Until sometime in 2021, when we have a vaccine that's widely available, if we are able to do that by then, even that's a giant, giant challenge. I do think at the other end of that, we're going to start to see over the months of May and June, some increase in economic activity as some states reopen some functions, more states reopen more functions, and consumers gradually come back. So, you know, as I said before, I think the way to think about this is not on, off, normal, closed but a dimmer switch, which is at a very low setting right now, and gradually comes back. But the overhang from this is going to be with us for a while. People, Many people who've lost their jobs will get their jobs back as places open. Other people will not. Some businesses that are closed temporarily will wind up closing permanently. Other industries will arise. This logistics industry is going to face new challenges, but also new levels of success and progress and in living in this world and in delivering for people in this world and there'll be new jobs in that industry but the dislocations the changes that this crisis has built and this crisis has imposed are going to be with us uh for a good long time
1: but we thank you so much ron this was incredibly insightful and thank you everyone who asked questions we have so much coming up